The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. It's the second Tuesday of May. I can't believe it. Dr. Fred Gertz is with me, one of my regular guests and resident expert. We also have certified financial planner professional and retirement income certified professional, David Rudy. David, you're calling in. Dave, do we have you on the line? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, sure. Here, loud and clear. Perfect. Call in with awesome. your questions, 217-356-9397, or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your question to talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own due diligence. Dr. Fred Gertz, what do we make of all this? It's as if, it, it, it's to me, it seems like it's playing out as what some people described as kind of like a, a natural disaster, that it's, it was horrible at first, but like all natural disasters, we get over them fairly quickly. Right. The only uh, difference is that this is not a, a isolated uh, natural disaster. It's not a hurricane in Florida or New Orleans or a, a flood in Chicago when, you know, when the uh, uh, underground in Chicago was flooded because that's only a tiny part of the whole country. This is uh, quite different. So, again, I, I, I've been saying that uh, I, I think I always think that the uh, market gives us the best estimate about what people think the value of the uh, uh, equity is. But uh, – it's also very surprising because uh, I think that the economy is going to be uh, coming back fairly slowly. The opening a restaurant with uh, a few tables in the parking lot is not the same as running a, a full-fledged uh, restaurant going 100%. So I think it's going to be a long recovery. And uh, you mentioned a little bit earlier that uh, the stock market may be more explained by the uh, willingness of the Fed to underwrite everything and, and deal with balance sheets as opposed to the actual uh, a kind of uh, faith in the economy. Well, they're certainly showing the willingness, uh, unending willingness, willingness, maybe willy-nilliness, yeah. um, to support asset prices, support liquidity in the system. But really, the, they ha they do have a pretty strong focus on asset prices. You know, with a willingness to buy distressed assets, et cetera, uh, from the marketplace. And uh, there's no question that they're they've. You know, maybe it's instead of QE4, we should call it. I think Ed Yardini, I don't want to take credit for it, but he calls it QE forever. Yeah. Uh, seems like the state we're in. And of course, much like 2008, 2009, I'm steering, I'm hearing all the choirs telling us we're going to have super high inflation because of all this printing of money, et cetera. What, what, what's your take on that? Well, again, it's, it's a question of the horizon. I, I think eventually uh, there will be. Some inflation, but it's a long time away, and that's not the primary uh, primary fear right now. It's dealing with the economy. On the other hand, um, I don't think the Fed or anyone else can uh, pump up asset prices forever. So it may no. be uh, uh, qualitative easing forever, but that's not going to work forever because either you'll end up with inflation or you'll end with a uh, not a collapse, but a, a certainly decline in asset prices. So again. I think the Fed is doing everything that it can right now, but the, the main thing I think is the uh, health or the strength of the recovery once the economy starts uh, growing again. Must be this leap of faith that if we can get if we can nurse the economy back, 
uh, in some fashion that so you're right. I mean, in the at the end of the day, as big as the Fed is, they can't hold up the market forever. Uh, it's going to take more favorable economic environment, which are going to lead to more favorable earnings from corporate America, and then higher dividends and valuations and all those things. So eventually, but I guess maybe we're doing the. They certainly have done everything they can to thrown everything at this thing. Right. And, and, and it's hard to know about, uh, you know, how, how fast the recovery is. But I think once we open up again, I don't think there'll be a decline in the uh, the number of uh, illnesses and maybe even deaths, but people will right. uh, get used to it. Uh, someone said that, I think, in either 1917 or 1918, uh, the, the real national product went up by 5 or 7%. Yeah. So, uh, and that was a case where they, they took uh, uh, sort of um, – kind of measures to deal with it but not in a national way and didn't shut thing, things down automatically so i think it's more a matter of getting things started again and maybe become accustomed to uh, you know dealing with this on a, on a continuing basis i think it's this classic case of human nature we tend to get as time goes on we get a little bit less shocked each day and i think that goes into our psyche uh, it strikes me that rapidly things have changed now yeah. illinois hasn't opened up rapidly but yeah. When you turn on the news, uh, you know, where we've gone from highlighting how many deaths of the day, uh, media really isn't doing its part. You know, they'll, so they'll say the states that have opened, now they've had a, a record day of deaths. Yeah. And, of course, they won't tell you then the next day they had a super low rate right. of deaths. Uh, but it, it is clearly the psychology, even in this town. I mean, I can't prove it. Just driving around town, it strikes me that, the, the psychology's changed. And when you open up the News Gazette today and you see that you're surrounded by states that are much yeah. more open and much freer to move about, uh, it, the pressure has to be building. It's almost like uh, how far can a, a state government go before the will of the people just say, well, well we're not going to do it. Right. Because I think really the, uh, the risk probably is just as high as it was on March 23rd, but people are, are used to it. And if you look at traffic, uh, I drove to Chicago on uh, 23rd, 24th, and it was totally deserted every place. The highways were vacant. Uh, we drove down downtown just to see what it was like, and no one was there. And now if you go out, uh, it's hard to know the difference between normal traffic and what we have today in, in most places. And that's what Apple is saying. They track people's driving, uh, and it's, it's really rebounded almost to prior levels, uh, or certainly getting close. Uh, and so that's kind of interesting. So that maybe that's all part of this. Dr. Fred Gertz and I were talking before the show, and I think we're both kind of in the camp. I don't. I don't want to speak for you, but you know, that's, I would. No way I would have thought that we see a, the Standard and Poor's 500 index above 3,000 uh, this soon. Yeah. Uh, other than the Federal Reserve, probably is the one part that I. Right. I relaxed, and I think I might have said this probably the last two shows, but. I, I was, some, and I'm an incurable optimist, but I was a little pessimistic on the front end of this thing until the, until I saw what the Fed and the Treasury right. were doing. It's like, well, they may not be able to stop it completely, but they can probably keep it from tipping into a depression. Right. I was really worried about tipping it into a depression. Right. And, and today, uh, today, I think the uh, uh, market's more based on real optimism, not on, on the Fed, because it doesn't change in one day except the fact that things are starting to open again. The, the other thing is that there's been a lot of bad news, but a lot of that bad news was uh, news that already was under uh, underway, uh, bankruptcies like with um, 
uh, I think Hertz is uh, Hertz, uh, Pier One, uh, Marcus, uh, Neiman Marcus, uh, yeah. Pennies, and so on. But most of those had pretty severe problems prior to the uh, the uh, virus situation. So I think it was a situation where it's making things happen maybe a little bit faster, but uh, things that might have happened anyway. That makes sense to me. I mean, a lot of those were Walking Dead. You know, they hadn't really shifted with the times, and you know, some things are going to change. Uh, maybe not as you know, I think there's a lot of talk about how the new normal is going to be so different. This human nature and history doesn't suggest that it would be all that different going forward, that we kind of tend to get back to our old behaviors. Right. Um, so we've gone from probably the worst unemployment and economic numbers that anybody alive right now may see the rest of their life, at least anybody with, uh, who's an adult, let's say. Uh, could it be ironic that maybe going into the election, we have some of the best numbers, maybe not relative to, you know, but maybe 10% unemployment is not a great number, but relative to 25% or 20% employment, it's showing. Yeah, the hope is it will get better, but uh, I don't think the bad news is all over in terms of employment, things of that sort. The uh, number of, of new claims is going down, but I don't think a lot of people are going back to work yet. So again, it will be a recovering economy, but... Uh, uh, recovering from a 25% unemployment rate is still uh, pretty bad news. So again, it's very hard about the uh, about the election. About, uh, for example, is is uh, Trump doing a good or a bad job now? I don't think anyone knows. He may not be being very uh, delicate about what he's doing, but whether it's a bad or a good idea, I think it's sort of uh, uncertain. And and for the most part, uh, most everything we hear that people talk about is is sort of uh, ad hoc. Uh, uh, Analysis. I don't think anyone knows whether uh, you know six feet is better than eight feet, or uh, right. a mask is better than no mask. There are all kinds of things that people are are telling us to do that may be a good idea, but they're not based upon any kind of uh, study. It's just based upon kind of logic, which may or may not be correct. Well, I think you say the whole thing for the whole shutdown. It was all. It was none of it was based on science. Right. Uh, it was based on horrible modeling. Uh, arguably, I, I'm not. I'm not going to attack the people that made those decisions. They were doing the best they could with the information they had at the time. Uh, but it still surprises me. And then we'll, I'll get off of this. Um, why nobody in the room? There wasn't one or two people that could tap people on the shoulder and saying, "Look, some of these people that are modeling these things have horrible track records." Right. Well, there's always an excuse when you model something bad and it doesn't happen, and that is that you responded in certain ways that made it less severe than it otherwise would. One of the criticisms of the modeling was that there was no uh, kind of adjustments uh, that, that occurred during the, uh, right. during the uh, situation. So again, if people are dropping like flies on the street, people are not going to be doing the same thing they did. Right. And, and so the, the excuse they, they could give, maybe rightly or wrongly, is that uh, the model was correct, except that uh, we took action and, and reduced the severity. To me, it seems like uh, a lot of politicians and people underestimated it. Then they went the other way and overestimated yeah. it. And then now they're kind of dug in politically and it's really hard to like it, admit you were maybe misguided. Yeah. Or, or Well, the other thing, uh, uh, most um, kind of dire, pro uh, uh, pr dire uh, predictions about what's going to happen are so far in the future no one ever takes any action. Right. So no one, no one uh, some people would argue that climate... Uh, Climate change is going to be more severe than this, but we're not doing anything about that. Uh, you could argue that uh, uh, you know all kinds of things are, are potentially more dangerous, whether it's uh, uh, 
you know, they're getting hit by an asteroid or whatever, right. but uh, uh, we don't do anything about this. If this was the case where we actually uh, took action and, and was very dramatic about what the impacts do were. Do you think there's risk that um, a lot of people think we overreacted and were, were in, you know, self-inflicted, created a self, maybe the most expensive self-inflicted wound in history, uh, that next time yeah. it may be more serious and people go, well, you know, it's kind of like, well, they told us the hurricane was going to be bad, and yeah. I stayed here, and I was fine. Right. Yeah, well, it also depends on your perspective. I'm, I'm guilty of the same kind of thing. I'm saying that uh, eventually we have to get our, uh, our fiscal situation under control and, and reduce the size of the debt to uh, uh, our national product. But no one, no one takes any action on that. Nothing has happened so far. So I still think it's a danger. I still think inflation is a... A potential, but again, uh, it's not happening right now. So you could argue the same thing that I'm a I'm an alarmist, and so maybe maybe not getting balanced budgets to balance budgets eventually uh, is dangerous. But people aren't afraid of it, right? They, you know, there's a difference between being scared of something and something being dangerous. Uh, well, it's how, far, it's how far in the future. One, one example, you know, again, there, no one knows about um, uh, the overall impacts of climate change. No one knows about. Uh, when there'll be a crisis, if there is one, about the size of the debt, uh, that kind of thing. But we know for sure that Social Security and Medicare are in trouble financially. We don't take any action because action now is painful, but uh, the, the results will only be uh, sort of helpful in 10, 20, 30 years in the future. Right. And as humans, we don't tend to operate that way. They're, now they're talking about sending out another round of stimulus, even bigger potentially. I'm, I'm talking about just at the family level now. Yeah. For the, I'll stick to that for a moment, where it's $1,200 per adult. Now it's going to be 1200 per family member with a maximum of 6000 so five people. Uh, I was kind of interested in reading that until I read, so then I read the next paragraph that Mitch uh, McConnell said is dead on arrival. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, it doesn't seem to be from the Trump administration, there doesn't seem to be this interest in more unemployment right. to incentivize people not i'm not suggesting yeah. this uh, but that's a lot where a lot of people are afraid of it incentivizes people to stay unemployed at a higher earnings than they would going back to work etc there's another proposal actually to uh, turn it around and give people a bonus for going back to work so <laughs> anything's possible so it's a very you know very complicated situation and no one really knows but the the problem with the stimulus right now is that we need to have something to stimulate. So if you give people money uh, and they can't spend it, it's not going to stimulate the economy very much. It will help them up them meet their, uh, their their problems, interest payments and uh, uh, mortgage payments, things of that sort. But that doesn't by itself really stimulate the economy very much. It would almost seem that if they did it now with more more states open, that it might have more right, more right. stimulates uh, also stimulating a, impact. A, uh, uh, magical thinking going on. It's, uh, the state of Illinois, uh, after all they've done, they, they passed a budget where uh, a good portion of the budget is based upon the, the you know, the fervent hope that the federal, uh, the federal reserve, but the federal government is going to come along and give them several billion dollars, which may or may not happen. But I think it's just a matter of time, right? Yeah. Maybe, maybe well, they, as long as Trump's in office, maybe not. But I think once. Yeah. We get maybe the Democrats in. They're gonna. They're, they're already leading. More. It's part of that big three trillion dollar bill already. So they've shown their cards. Right. I'm not suggesting it's good or bad. I'm just. But this saying. is a, a little different too. But I think they're actually thinking about uh, a, a loan in addition to uh, aid. So, so again, it may may work out. But it, it was just a way of uh, not having to bite the bullet right away. 
All right, I'm going to switch topics a little bit here. Uh, in our News Gazette columns that the boys and I have been writing, um, we've talked about mutual funds and we've talked about exchange-traded funds. So we thought we'd cover a little bit of that on the radio, David, if, if you could help me out with that. Um, basically, there, there were topics of two columns. Now, there's key differences, David, in mutual funds and exchange-traded funds. Maybe you could take one at a time just briefly of saying, okay, and, and start highlighting the differences for me and for the people listening. Sure. So I think, you know, before we even get into the differences, we might just define, you know, each of them. Um, so they're, they're very similar in the regard that they're basically like a, an investment vehicle that allows investors to pool their money together and then have a professional money manager invest their money. And I think, you know, the main reason for mutual funds coming into existence was, you know, before they existed, you'd run into a problem. Let's say you're an early investor and you only had, um, you know, a small amount of money to invest. Uh, you might not be able to diversify your portfolio very well because you could probably only afford to buy maybe a few shares of a few different companies. And as, you know, listeners who of our radio show know, that's not really an investment approach that we would recommend. It's just a high level of risk, a good chance that you're going to pick the wrong companies or companies that just don't do that well. And so basically mutual funds came out as a solution to that problem that said, look, you know, even if you have a small amount of money, we can pool a bunch of investors' money together. Then with that pool of money, basically buy a diversified investment portfolio. And historically, you know, at, at first they were all uh, actively managed, which just means, you know, the, the mutual fund manager was basically trying to outperform the market by um, using his, his skills and expertise to pick winning stocks or time when to get in and out of the market. Um, but more and more common these days is um, index-based mutual funds where they're just tracking an index, not trying to outperform anything. Um, so that's kind of from a big picture standpoint, how they both work. So I think a lot of people get confused, particularly by ETFs. And I always tell them, you know, from a big picture standpoint, mutual funds and ETFs are, are almost the same. Um, so as far as differences, I think the one major difference, and, and I think this is the most significant one, is um, mutual funds just trade at the close of the market at the end of the day. Um, exchange traded funds, they trade like a stock throughout the day. So they trade on a stock exchange. Um, so that's, that's why they're named that. Um, and, and that's one of the big differences. And, you know, some people might think that's a big advantage. I don't think it really makes a meaningful difference whatsoever um, unless you're, you're day trading or you think you can time, you know, the right time throughout the day to buy something. Yeah. Um, David, let me, let, me say one thing about, let me say one thing about that. I think that... Uh, you know, again, what, what you said is exactly right, that people are, are saying, well, if you have an exchange-traded fund, you can always uh, you know, sell at noon or th 2 o'clock or whatever. The problem is that the time you might want to do it, it may not work. I think the, uh, the uh, fund sort of froze up during the, uh, the severe decline in, uh, in early March. So if you waited all your life to be able to trade during the day, you might have found that you couldn't do it the very time you wanted to do it. It just kind of puts human yeah, psychology kind of in a compression but, but situation. The, the funds aren't able to actually right. uh, take care of the trade in, 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 a, in a very volatile kind of market. Or what will happen, too, is you can have uh, bigger bid-ask spreads if people are trading a lot, or the value of 
or the price of the ETF can differ from its net asset value, which is kind of like you can think of the value per share of the, the ETF of the underlying assets. So you're basically buying it for more or less than what it's, you could say, truly worth because there's so much pressure selling it down or so much pressure buying something up if it becomes really popular. So those are things that, you know, it can sound on its face like a big advantage. Hey, I can trade this whenever I want throughout the day. Um, but there are downsides to being exchange traded yeah. as well. In, in one sense, um, it's a little bit like a, uh, a closed-end fund, except it doesn't have quite the volatility of a closed-end fund. Yeah, very, I mean, very similar in that regard. And then, you know, the other one, and I tend to not get into this um, too much with clients, at least the like technical side of it, but exchange traded funds have some logistical things as far as how they operate that tend to lead to them distributing um, less money and capital gains. So they tend to be a little bit more tax efficient, although, you know, nowadays they have mutual funds that are extremely tax efficient as well. So um, it, depending, you know, if you're comparing an index fund ETF or versus an index fund mutual fund, the difference isn't going to be huge, but the ETFs can be a little bit more um, tax efficient just in terms of kicking out less in capital gain. I think also you have to be a little careful when it started out. Uh, I may be wrong, but I, I think that almost all the ex exchange traded funds were sort of classical index oriented. Now there are all kinds of uh, like uh, uh, it's a, a thing too good to be left alone by financial people. They have, in a sense, actually traded uh, EOTs, which is getting away from the basic investment idea that we usually talk about. Yeah, you know, and that's a problem with mutual funds and ETFs. It's kind of like, you know, the financial industry will basically create any sort of investment product they think people want or that they could sell to people. And like you said, sometimes they come up with really kind of either really specific niche mutual funds or ETFs that target a really specific sector or, or commodity or whatever it is, or like exchange-traded funds, they even have leveraged exchange-traded funds that are supposed to double or triple the movement of a certain you know stock index. And those are things that we wouldn't necessarily recommend. So just like anything, you know, if, if you go the, go about it the wrong way, you can run into troubles. But um, both things, honestly, from a, you know, as long as you're using broad, hopefully index fund-based mutual funds or ETFs, um, they can be a really, really good investment vehicle for the vast majority of investors because it eliminates that need for you to analyze companies and pick which stocks or uh, individual bonds to buy. So it does, it simplifies investing a ton. And uh, think, can you name, you know, kind of t tell the audience, like if you're going to want to do get quick exposure, long-term, lifetime exposure to broad market ind indices, uh, what types of exchange-traded funds come to mind? Because one advantage is you can buy them on a at a lot of brokerage firms these days without any commissions at all. So uh, which ones come to mind when you think about the broadest category exchange-traded funds? Yeah, and I'll list a, you know, a couple or a few that I, I think of, but these aren't necessarily recommendations. So just you know, for the listeners, keep that in mind. But you know, if you want to keep things extremely simple, the nice thing is now they're total world stock and, and total world bond ETFs and mutual funds. So like, for example, Vanguard has a total world stock ETF. 
So in that one fund, it essentially covers the entire global stock market, and it, it covers the stock market, global stock market, and its market cap weights are very close to it. So about you know half or a little more than half is in the U.S. and the rest outside the U.S. invested internationally. I know like Fidelity has now some their zero expense ratio funds, and I think those are split between you know they have a total U.S. stock market and a total international stock market one, if I remember correctly. And then, yeah, there are uh, companies that, you know, they'll have, you know, Vanguard has their total bond market index or total international bond market index. Um, and again, these are just more of a, to give you an idea of how, how simple things can be. So you don't need, I think a lot of people think investing is more complicated than it really has to be. You don't have to know um, how to, analyze companies and pick stocks or bonds and even one step further you don't have to figure out how much goes in large companies versus small companies or value versus growth um, if you don't want to get into that level of detail you can just buy total world stock index funds and, and call it a day just make sure you uh, first determine a, a good ratio of stocks versus bonds for your financial goals and also just tolerance for fluctuation um, but you know in in one or two or three funds you can have a really um, solid investment portfolio. And, and the costs are really low in, in that situation as well, aren't they? Extremely low. I mean, to the point where they're almost negligible. And I don't remember off the top of my head the expense ratios. I mentioned those Fidelity ones. They have zero, zero expense ratio. And, and that made big news. What was that? About a year ago they, they yes. announced that? I can't remember. It was about a year ago. Um, you know, I think Vanguard's total world stock ETF might be like point. 1% expense ratio. I don't remember exactly. It's low. It's in that ballpark. It's extremely low. And Fred, do you see um, a push from pension funds to uh, kind of figuring this out over the years that, you know what, expenses do matter. Uh, the professionals aren't necessarily doing what they come in and dance and tell us they're going to do. Is there, is there much reflection on costs in the, at, at the higher level in pension funds or in endowments, do you think? There's a lot of interest, but it uh, doesn't necessarily manifest itself in uh, <clears throat> going totally indexed because there are um, all kinds of hybrids now that are available, and there's a lot of push to uh, try to protect yourself against the downside risk, things of that sort. So in the case of SERS, uh, it's become a little bit more complex, but again, the uh, the fee thing is very, very important, and the, the effect of uh, what um, David was talking about is that it uh, doesn't stop at the um, – at the passive level, uh, the active managers are uh, being pushed to lower and lower fees as well, or the special uh, special kinds of uh, niche uh, investment situations. So, when I go to investment uh, uh, meetings, uh, and you have to sit, sit at a table next to some money managers, <laughs> they're crying about uh, how tough the world is because they have to uh, play the game against. Uh, against index funds, which are doing pretty well compared to everyone else. Plus, they have their fees being squeezed time and time again. Yeah, I mean, that, if you're just in the asset management business, you can expect that trend to continue, I suspect. And, uh, you know, that's a pretty tough outlook. Other than the random, every now and then you're going to get a fund manager that outperforms the market again. More likely that it's random than skill. But, uh, you know, luck masquerades is skill quite often, right. and it's hard to tell the difference between the two. There's also a proliferation. There's always new strategies that purport to be better. So instead of buying bonds, now you can have direct lending to companies, things of that sort, which 
it, it may work initially, it may work sometimes, but I don't think it's a magic formula for increasing your yields. I always found it fascinating when endowments and pension funds with kind of perpetual time horizons would spend any time worrying about temporary declines, but yet yeah. they do. I mean, that, that, you know, when you look at across the board, how endowments and large pension funds are invested, you know, <laughs> suddenly 50 or 60 percent of their uh, assets are in alternative investments and I always say once you get to that level they're not an alternative anymore right and things again there are fads uh, uh, a decade or two ago uh, some foundations like Harvard had their own forester because they were investing in yeah. uh, in timber and now that's kind of uh, gone by the board so it may, it may work initially on a small scale but it seldom works for the long term on a big scale well the good news is uh, for investors these days compared to when I got into the business 36 or yeah 36 years ago uh, you know back then uh, most mutual funds uh, were actively managed most of them had a eight to eight and a half percent sales charge on the front end uh, suddenly we've shifted to well you could buy broad diversification or narrow diversification yeah. for pennies on the dollar compared to then with no surrender charges uh, and so the world has been a sea change since I've been in this business for nearly four decades of how just the underlying investment vehicles have gotten to almost to their to a, a no cost situation. Yeah, it's a real difference in the, in the uh, way the world works. When I was a kid, uh, I go to my uncle's house and he had a, a desk with all kinds of prospectus on it. And he was doing this and that and the other thing. And he always did really well in the stock market. Yeah. But I'm sure he didn't uh, never. Uh, Really calculate it compared to an index. Right. Um, I, th I read a piece of economic news I thought was kind of interesting, almost seemed contradictory at first. Sales of existing homes fell 17.8% month to month and were 17.2% lower than April of 2019, seasonally adjusted. Okay, that's of course to the National Association of Realtors. That's who gave me that information. Uh, largest one month decline since July of 2010, but the supply of homes for sale fell 19, call them 20%. I'm just going to round it here. Uh, the lowest April inventory figure ever. And so because of that drop in inventory, pushed prices to a record high. Now, normally, if you thought you were going to have a horrible recession slash right. depressionary almost, and, uh, some depressionary uh, parts of the economy, uh, you would think, wow, housing prices would have, I won't say collapsed, but gone down considerably maybe. And here we have just the opposite. We have home prices. Yeah, it's kind of a, a principle of economics problem where uh, you ask the students uh, what would happen. Well, what's happened is there's been a big reduction in the supply and a big reduction in demand, and, and the quantity has gone down a lot, but price hasn't really changed as, as much as you'd expect. And mortgage rates are have settled down, and they're very low again. It was interesting. They went from extremely low, maybe historical lows, on the front end of this thing to shortly thereafter, they basically, the, the mortgage market just kind of backed away and said, ah, we're not sure we want to lend any money to anybody. I'm exaggerating. Uh, but the price of mortgages, interest went way up, and now it's back down to the 3% or sub 3% for a 30-year uh, Yeah, I just read a, time a story, frame. though, that uh, the lenders aren't as uh, forgiving as they, they used to be in terms of uh, qualification for the low-interest loans. So, yeah. again, it's there, but you have to be able to qualify in terms of uh, uh, creditworthiness. In fact, I ref financed uh oh maybe a month month and a half ago and yeah it was it was like you had to fit into a certain slot to get a certain rate of yeah. interest and it was it was pretty tight uh conditions 
turns out the median uh, so it does uh, median uh, home price of existing homes sold in April was two hundred eighty six thousand eight hundred so again that's not inflation adjusted but it's kind of interesting to see that um, I was going to go on to Paul was writing about he did a blog the other day and I thought it kind of rang a lot of lot quite a bit true of the last 60 days he wrote a blog that says favorite Mike Tyson quote everyone has a game plan until they get punt get punched in the mouth uh, you and I Fred have been talking about how my words not yours a get out of jail free card because uh, what and the reason I brought that up a couple of shows ago so maybe a month or so ago was I think a lot of people got caught off guard with their current investment allocation between stocks and bonds and some people felt like maybe their risk appetite wasn't what they thought it was in real time and in all fairness that's it's you, you can explain to somebody what falling 30 percent or 36 percent in the stock market feels like but it's not the same thing as actually going through it and i think that was a part of paul's blog was you know what it, especially for do-it-yourselfers this is not against doing it yourself but without a financial advisor kind of to give you some some additional historical perspective and to talk you through it and there's another thing i'm going to talk about in a minute about a study about behavioral impact and how people men and women behave uh you know what should you do and and that was my point two shows ago and we reminded it was even a little more favorable last show maybe a little more favorable this show that if that was the case for you i think people should have the permission to feel like you know what i made a mistake i got over my skis i didn't pay the ultimate price for it because of this amazing rebound but i'm not but i'm convinced that if it was really disturbing and keeping people asleep keeping people asleep back in you know the lows of march this is the time where you you look at and you try to be real honest with yourself and say, how much of a decline can I stand? Can I, I'm going to call it sleep through, and try to get to that number. And you know, if you need an advisor to help you, find an advisor to give you some more historical background about what to expect from certain allocations. But you probably ought to get to that allocation. Right. The only only uh, negative there is there's a, a behavioral saying that you should go to the grocery store when you're hungry. And you probably shouldn't make really big decisions at the uh, top of the market or or the bottom of the market. So, again, it's, it's a good idea to rethink it, but whether you should actually act on it is uh, not necessarily uh, true. For, for example, I uh, up until three or four months ago, I, I've been saying, well, I've been rebalancing uh, out of equities. Right. And I kept saying, well, I really shouldn't have done that. I should have stayed in. I've been really great. And then, then I've been thanking myself for doing it the last uh, – two months and now i'm rethinking it again so you don't want to be colored by the uh by the current situation either and to show you how smart my son is he wrote though these investors shouldn't rush to make any changes in their investments they might want to take an honest look at their long-term game plan for investing to see if it needs an adjustment so i guess he's kind of in i think that's good advice it's like well okay but here's the here's the catch fred i could go to somebody who was panicked at the lows and if you came to him today Eight out of ten of them would say, oh, I feel better now, right. and I think I'm okay, and I got through that. Well, that was a 36% down market. Yeah. It was down – the broad U.S. market was down 56% in 2008, 2009. So I know some of those people aren't going to make it. So 
maybe maybe instead of doing it all at once, maybe you make you know you make a point of hey, let's not do it like let's not, let's not go to the grocery store hungry or to the yeah. liquor store thirsty. <laughs> yeah. Don't go to the liquor store thirsty. I say, yeah. uh, maybe what you do is you, you come up with you know what instead of being sixty percent stocks, I'm really a person that probably should be halfway there, and I maybe yeah. I ought to be thirty percent stocks. I'm just making up numbers. And maybe right now you're 50% stocks. You were 60, you went down maybe to 40, now you're back up to 50. Yeah. Uh, maybe over the next six or 12 months, you dollar cost average out of the stock market on a, just a monthly basis. And if, if, if we get a little bit more of a melt up, maybe you speed it up a little bit. But I think it's really important for people to have that honest assessment of, of their risk tolerance. And it turns out, uh, and when I'm looking for, okay, in kind of in the backdrop of that, there was an interesting study that, and the, the impact of emotions on risk tolerance. Because my experience over four decades is a, a single person's risk tolerance moves. Sure. Uh, it moves with age, kind of in the biggest, you know, spectrum. Uh, but it can move within the year based just on what the conditions are, the state of time. But Chris Brooks, Ivan Sangiori, Anastasia Saravia, I'm butchering these names, but I'm pretty sure that none of them are listening. And a couple of others contribute to the behavioral finance literature with the April 2020 study, The Importance of Staying Positive, The Impact of Emotions on Attitude and Risk. And they examine the impact of emotions towards financial investments, towards life in general, and attitudes on financial risk. It was a pretty broad base, almost 1,000 people. Uh, I'm just going to go through some of their most interesting findings in terms of financial knowledge. So they had five kind of basic questions, financial questions. 12% were unable to answer any. 22% uh, got one correct. 23% got two. 26%, so it's almost kind of like even after that. 13% got four correct and only 4% answered all five questions. I bet you'd be in the top, that 4%, Fred. Uh, they showed that positive emotions have a stronger impact on risk tolerance than negative emotions. That surprised me a little bit. I would have, I would have thought the opposite. Uh, here's one. It's, women tend to state that they have lower levels of investment experience than men. Just over 50% of women put themselves in the lowest experience category versus 21% of men. Now that doesn't surprise me, right? We all, we, I've read no, numerous studies how, uh, and, and they said it best, uh, where they said one might state that men are happy to invest in ignorance while women are not. <laughs> and I've, that's kind of Anecdotally, that's kind of what I've seen play out here. Women are less risk tolerant than men at all ages. They are also more fearful and more nervous than men, with highly significant differences between the means. So, but they also, uh, I believe, women are less likely to take action, which actually works in their benefit. I think studies have shown that uh, they do trade. Uh, that less. People who, who uh, don't trade often probably do better than people that uh, are in the market all the time. They did show that risk tolerance yeah. declines with age. Go ahead, Dave. I was going to actually mention that. I think there's actually even studies showing that women on average have better investment performance than men for the exact reason that Dr. Gertz mentioned, because men tend to suffer from overconfidence a little bit more and they tend to trade more and get things wrong more. And women tend to be a little bit better at just buying and holding and being a little more disciplined. They may also, the, really the, the downside of that is that sometimes people are more, who don't think they know are more susceptible to, uh, advisors who not, aren't necessarily uh, on the same page they should be with them. So, an example, my mother uh, didn't know much about uh, investing, and she went with a, uh, 
an advisor, I think, was, and she took his advice rather than mine, and she didn't do particularly well because she trusted the, the person. So it's kind of a, a double-edged sword. Uh, did show that risk tolerance declines with age, and risk tolerance rises with income, self-assessed investment experience, objectively obsessed financial knowledge and educational level. Uh, kind of, that's intuitive to me that that would be true. It says the findings led the authors to conclude it's clear that omitting, and I think this is what I want people to think about, and when you're dealing with your advisor that you actually just open up to your advisor about your emotions, it's clear that omitting emotional factors from the theoretical or, or empirical models is likely to result in a very incomplete view of how people make financial decisions. It's also important for investors and investment advisors alike to be aware that risk tolerance varies not over time, but also with changing mood. Boy, have I seen that time and time again. I've seen, I've seen investors go from why do we own bonds at all to how come we don't have all our money in bonds, sometimes within a year. Being aware can help avoid making behavioral errors. And again, I guess the last line I could have started with because it's, it's, been, it's been my experience that any unsuccessful investors I've ever met if you talk to them long enough, you realize that there were behavioral issues behind it. It's not so much that they couldn't pick the right investments or weren't even in the right investments. Uh, somewhere along the line or many times along the line, they got scared out of them or they, or they went into irrational exuberance. Right. And I saw that play out. Probably, probably had more damage, Fred. If I had to, uh, since 1984... Say, where's the one period where you, you thought you saw more financial damage for more people? I would probably say in that 2000 to 2003 bear market, because even the most conservative people couldn't take it anymore, or many of them, yeah. and had to load up on at least some of those dot com companies. Yeah. Um, and that, and many of those did permanent damage. And that, right. that's, there's a big difference between um, a temporary decline in the stock market that's maybe larger than you could have ever anticipated. Uh, there's at least, I think, some comfort in, well, I don't know when, but at some point it's going to get better versus, yeah. you know, pets, petrocksrus.com uh, that just blew away in the wind and never came back. Well, there were lots of really well-known, uh, as part of the AT&T breakup, there were some stocks that I think they used to call part of the 80% club or 90% club where they lost 80 or 90% of their value. And you're never going to come back from that. Uh, again, there's a arithmetic thing as well. If you if you lose 90% and then gain 90%, you're still way, way, way below, uh, below water level. And Dave, uh, it's been two weeks since our last show. Uh, tell me about what you're hearing, or are you even hearing much, hearing much from clients in the last couple of weeks? You know, I'm really not hearing too much. I think, I think the rally has calmed people quite a bit. Um, if anything, you know, the stuff that I'm hearing is, you know, is it, is the market over its skis essentially um should we you know be taking some gains stuff like that basically the thing i've noticed this decline in general it's bringing out the market timer in everyone everyone i think they want that certainty they want you know if they have money on the sidelines they want to know that it's the right time to put that money to work or if they you know have a certain allocation or maybe they need to rebalance they want to know if it's the right time to rebalance and the answer is always the same. It's, well, I, I can't tell you the perfect time to do all these things. That would require a crystal ball, and I don't have one. And I'm happy to report no one else does either. So it's, it's not just me. Um, but I do think, I, I don't know if it's just the fear, but it seems like 
everyone's a little bit more prone to try to time the market right now. That's interesting, Fred. Uh, but yet, kind of intuitively, it makes sense because it's such a compact period right now that we've yeah. seen. But also, uh, it's. Um, I think I agree that uh, people seem to be grasping at straws, though, to a certain extent. Uh, the president has a has a uh, news conference about uh, a vaccine, and the market goes up. Well, there's no vaccine. It's just a hope. A hope, yeah. And, you know, today the market's up uh, a huge amount, uh, maybe based on the hope that reopening is going to be uh, a good deal. So, again, it can go both both directions. If we have a resurgence of uh, the virus in certain places, you may have a big uh, response that way as well. Maybe what's going on, Dave, is the more violent the swings are in the market, and this, you know, especially in March, they were it was three times as volatile as a typical month on a day to day. You look at your day to day volatility when you when you move great distances in short periods of time, both up and down. Don't you think that is what kind of maybe it's that fear that this thing is so wild? Maybe that makes it more important that I not make a mistake and get in on the wrong day at the wrong hour. Yeah, I think that's definitely a role. And I think, too, human nature being what it is, people just want certainty. They want to know what's going to happen. And unfortunately, when you're dealing with investing, uh, certainty just doesn't exist. Like, there's just an inherent level of uncertainty involved in investing, particularly in stocks. And I think, you know... Uh, David, I was gonna, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, I, I'm reminded of something you said last week, like two weeks ago. Uh, this is a time where uh, market timing can work fantastically if you get it right, but it's also a time where it's uh, you can make huge mistakes by uh, by getting it wrong. So I think that uh, the idea of being out of the market in the market at a certain time is appealing. But since you don't know uh, when the time is, the, the chances of losing probably are, are pretty substantial as well. And, and guys, one of those decisions is wor- is worse than the other, okay? So if I know that I have $100,000 that needs to be invested broadly in the stock market for the next 20 or 30 years for me to be able to retire the way I want to retire, and I have bad, and I try to time it, and I have bad timing, and the market goes up 10%, well, and never comes back again, and that happens all the time. I've permanently done damage to myself by missing that early entrance into a powerful bull market. If I know I'm going to be in there for the next 20 to 30 years, and so the market doesn't, you know, it, 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 you know, I time the market and I get a little bit luckier, it's not really going to drive, you know, make that retirement all that much better. But if, again, it's, even if you're right, I just still think being wrong and missing out on what you should be in to begin with, that's a permanent loss. I don't know how you guys feel about that, but it just doesn't feel it doesn't feel as bad to people though. That's what I've noticed because it doesn't you know it's it's like opportunity cost or or missing out on gains. It's not as tangible as it is seeing I had a hundred thousand dollars and now I have eighty. You know, I think that's the the reason that people don't worry about that that potential risk as much as they worry about investing and then seeing it fall even though like you said i think i believe too that you know it's probably more harmful in the long run to miss out on those gains permanently and that's why you know i was we had our office hours last tuesday with our our clients we're doing these webinars and i i always i I mentioned on that call that i think at a certain point you need to make a very firm decision i will not attempt to time the market 
and really in your mind just make up make that decision like I said in a very firm manner and I'm not going to chase after performance and I'm not going to panic and sell and to do that you need to make sure that you're in an allocation to begin with that you can stick with so that's kind of like step one but I do think sometimes people they'll say oh I know you can't time the market but then they kind of try to like on the fringes a little bit and so I think you just you don't even want to open that door a crack to to letting emotions influence any investment decisions. It should all be plan based. I think so. Uh, again, that, exactly is how that plays out because people will say, "I know you can't time the market," just as you said, and then it's that but. But do you think this yeah. is a good time for me to add some money? But is this a good time for us to take some gains or or? And uh, David is very rigid on this. <laughs> much more than I. He's like, pull a string out of his back, he's going to tell you the same thing every right. time. Whereas occasionally I'll bite and I'll say, well, you know, if I was going to add money here, I'd probably dollar cost average and, and things like that, which tend to, tend to work against you, but I'm always trying to fight the war of emotions at the same yeah. time. You also have to kind of freeze your risk tolerance. So we talked about earlier that people's risk tolerance changes over time, but that could be an excuse for doing all kinds of weird things. So I think you have to uh, make yourself think about your long-term risk tolerance and not let yourself get into, well, uh, things are really bad now. I, I figured out I'm, I'm more risk-averse than I thought, so I'm going to sell or vice, vice versa. I think so, too. I think it always made sense to me to say, okay, what is it I want? What's the purpose of this money? And what am I going to define as risk? A temporary decline or not getting to where I want to be? You know, one of them, you know, those are, you know, there's a price for being comfortable. If I want to be comfortable at all times, I can't, I can't create a, a strategy where the clients, the spending stream is probably going to need to triple over a three-decade retirement. But I can't create that and have them sleep every night perfectly. You're gonna, you pick which one you want. You want to be insecure on the front end of retirement, or do you want to be insecure financially when you're in your mid-80s or even 90? Um, these are just risk trade-offs. And I'm not even sure they're risk trade-off. Well, I guess it is a risk trade-off. You're risking one against the other. Uh, there's a huge price for comfort. Uh, you just need to find out what that price right. is. Somebody needs to explain the price of being comfortable. Yeah, I think last time David said that with all this volatility, no one really, and your clients, no one went outside the bounds where they right. had to do anything drastic. To we had, Dave, you can, we got about a minute. Uh, you had, did you have a handful of people out of maybe your hundred or so clients that needed a modest spending change? Would that be fair? Yeah, that was, that's about right. And probably most, if not all, those are probably getting to a point where we could go back to where we were. But <clears throat> that's just the benefit, Fred, of when you torture it enough up front, it, what it forces you to do from a spending standpoint on the front end of retirement of being relative, pretty conservative. And if you have a conservative spending on the front end of retirement, we don't want it to be perpetually that way. We want you to be able to live the best life you can with the money you have. But on the front end, safeguard by doing that, assuming worse than's going to happen. And then if it doesn't show up, then you improve your spending, but you make it prove itself first. Well, thanks guys. Thanks, David Rudy, Certified Financial Planner Professional, and Dr. Fred Gertz for joining me today. We'll be back the second Tuesday of June, whatever that date is, and I don't have a clue, but we'll be here the second Tuesday of June. This is Paul Rudy. Thanks for listening. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. 
Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.